0: The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Well, let's come around the Word of God. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Today we continue our overviewish sermon series on the theme that we're considering this ministry year 2019-2020, which is, what's the theme? Kingdom. 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 God's incredible kingdom. Now before we actually come to the passage and before I start preaching, I just want to ask you a question. It's not a very really serious question, but the question is this. How many of you have been to Uluru, or better known as Ayers Rock? Hands up. All right, keep your hands up, all right, those of you who've been there, hands up. Now, second question, a bit more contentious. How many of you have climbed Ayers Rock? Yeah, a few of you? If if you haven't climbed Ayers Rock and it's still on your bucket list, you've only got a month left to do so, all right, they're going to be banning all climbing of Ayers Rock pretty soon, and so you haven't got long, uh, but I've, I've actually, you can put your hands down now. all right. I've been to Ayers Rock. In fact, confession time, I've actually climbed Ayers Rock as well. When I was 19, as a backpacker traveling around Australia, I visited Ayers Rock and I got it into my head, no whatever a lie, to break the world record in climbing, running up Ayers Rock in the fastest time. I just got it into my head because I was 19 and arrogant. And so I set out. It was like 5 in the morning, beautiful scenery, I was with a group, but I left them for dead. I just started to run up Ayers Rock. And I made it to the top without f- falling off. And, and, and I made it all the way down as well, running down. I, I still remember people's expressions as I was running down Ayers Rock. Like it's a decline like this. And they were struggling to come up. And I was running past them. And they were giving me that look as if to say, you're a lunatic, man. You are going to die. And I'm, I praise God that I didn't die because I wasn't a Christian then. And I'm here to tell the towel. But guess what? Guess what? I, I didn't break the world record. <laughs> I missed out by about five minutes, but I gave it my best shot. Now, for those of you who have been there, likely you can remember the dominating image, the dominating presence of Uluru, Ayers Rock. In fact, I've got a picture here. Look, this is the main road that heads in, and it just dominates the landscape. Now, this year we're thinking about what? kingdom kingdom. The theme of God's kingdom, like Uluru, literally dominates the landscape of scripture. In other words, the kingdom, God's incredible kingdom, is one of God's big rocks in the Bible. And this year, as we know, we're metaphorically going to climb this big rock, the kingdom, so that we gain a better understanding of what it actually is, so that we actually align our lives with the values of God's kingdom, and also continue to faithfully, consistently proclaim the message of God. God's incredible kingdom. All right? So, this is where we're heading this year. We're going to unpack these three things clearer vision, align our lives with the values of the kingdom, proclaiming it more consistently, more faithfully. The reason why I've selected Matthew chapter six, and in particular, a portion of the Lord's Prayer, that's what we're going to focus on this morning because Jesus in this prayer gives us a a helicopter view of the kingdom of God so that we understand it a bit better, what it's largely about. And so if you've got your Bibles open now at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to jump in at verse 9 and just read down to verse 10. So two verses, profound verses this morning. This is what we read. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Two weeks ago when Hill got our new theme for the year underway, he raised a pivotal question. He asked a pivotal question. The question was this, if you remember, what is the kingdom about? That was the question. What is the kingdom about? And as I've been reflecting on this question these past two weeks, I've, I've, I've realized that to really get at the heart of that question, we need to ask another question, and the question is this, what is the king of the kingdom about? Right, that makes sense, yeah? If we go and understand what the kingdom is about, we've got to first understand what the king himself, what God himself is about. Now, I think the answer that we're going to discover from Matthew 6 and other passages that I'm going to cite may startle, even confuse some of you from from the get-go. And so two things must happen in this sermon, two important things. Number one i've got to be clear 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 in my communication so please pray for me in fact the team prayed that way this morning that i would have clarity and so i'm expecting to be very clear and secondly you need to think 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 carefully about what's communicated in this sermon all right because it's going to be one of those brainiac kind of messages is that all right yeah. no is this all right okay all right, well, how about I pray so that the lines of communication are clearly established in this sermon. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we, we want to come under your word. We want to hear your word for itself, Lord. We don't want to import foreign ideas into your word. Lord, that's blasphemous. We don't want to do that. We want, Lord God, to sit under it so that we may learn from it, that we may, Lord God, be changed by it, And Lord, we know that this is your will. And so I pray, Lord, that you would establish these things in this sermon, through this message. Amen. So the question, what is the king of the kingdom about? Well, I'm going to give you the answer straight out of the gate here. And then I'm going to do a few things with the answer. Here's the answer. The king of the kingdom, God himself, is supremely about his own glory in the world. Did you hear that? He's supremely, which means he's infinitely, he's mainly, he's fervently, he's passionately about his own fame and glory in the world. In other words, God's all-consuming passion is the upholding and then the displaying of his worth, of his beauty, of his power, of his majesty in the world. This is what the king of the kingdom is about. Now, I want to do three things with this profound statement. Number one, I want to show it. That is, I want us to realize that this is more than a profound statement. This is a biblical reality. Secondly, I want to clarify it because we might get the wrong end of the stick. When we think about God being radically God-centered, we could go wrong here. So we need to clarify what this actually means. And lastly, I want to apply it. How are we to respond to this dazzling reality that God is radically God-centered? Centered. So show it, clarify it, apply it. Show it then. The reason why we're in Matthew chapter 6 is because in this portion of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a glimpse as to what he was about in the world. Why he got out of bed in the morning. Why he came from heaven to earth. Why he went to the cross. We get a glimpse as to what made Jesus tick. So he kicks off the prayer as we know and he says this. He says, when you pray, say, our Father, and then comes what Jesus was mainly about. He says, You've got to pray this way Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, it's likely that we don't use the term hallowed in our day-to-day lives, right? We only use it in our prayer closet, but most of us don't take it out of our prayer closet because we don't want to be seen as to be weirdos. And so what does it really mean to hallow God? What is Jesus actually asking us to pray here, pray into being, pray into motion? Well, to have God's name hallowed means that his name would be placed in a class, in a category, in a league, all by itself, that God would be placed in a category all by himself, where people actually see his worth, they cherish his worth, that they see his supreme, infinite glory, that they would just fall more in love in Him, of him. That, that's what it means to have his name hallowed. Now, what's really interesting about this request that Jesus asks us to pray is that we have God here, asking us to bring this about. He is the Son of God. Jesus incarnate Son of God, true God of very God, not less than God, but co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And He, the Son of God, is asking us to ask the Father to cause people around the world, locally, globally, unreached people groups, to find their affection in Him, to make Him their number one affection, their number one priority, their number one treasure. And so clearly, God is radically God centered because Jesus is no hypocrite. He's not only asking us to pray this, he, I believe, himself prayed this way. Jesus was about the glory of his Father. And so, going back to the question what is the King of the Kingdom about? Well, he's supremely about his own glory and fame in the world, as reflected in Jesus' prayer here, in his appeal hallowed be your name. And we could add your kingdom, your will be done. Now, what's remarkable about this emphasis that God is radically God-centered is that it's not only found in one place in the Bible. This is not one single isolated text. No, this same emphasis that God is radically God-centered is a note that is struck throughout the whole Bible again and again and again and again from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, I've got at least 40 plus references, and I'm not going to go through them now. But if you would like them, come see me and I can email those to you so you can think about those in your own time. But for the sake of explaining, showing that this is radically biblical, I want to take you to one Old Testament text which is so clear, so blatant on this particular emphasis that God is God-centred. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. Now listen to what God says to the nation of Israel through the lips of Isaiah the prophet. He says, for my namesake, should be in the screen, there it is. For my namesake, I delay my wrath. Whose sake? God's sake, ultimately. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as to not destroy you completely. So he's saying to them, look, you deserve punishment for your sin for your idolatry but I'm not going to punish you and the reason why I just want you to know oh people of Israel is yeah I I love you I care for you but but that's not the ultimate reason why I'm not going to pour out my judgment on you the ultimate reason is, is for my praise it's for my namesake he continues you see i've refined you though not as silver i've tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake there's an echo at church's why for my own sake i do this now when this happens in the bible when there's a repetition of words it's basically god making a big huge point because in the ancient world, Hebrew, in that language, there are no exclamation marks, right? We just use an exclamation mark. We want to make a point. When God wants to make a point, he repeats himself. And so God is saying, hey, I just want you to know that this is mainly about me, about my fame, as we can tell. Because he continues, how can I let myself be defamed, he says. Which is essentially the same thing as saying, I'm not going to judge you for my fame. I will not yield my glory to another, he says. This is remarkable. Like six times, again and again and again. He's saying, I'm not gonna do this for myself, for my glory, for my fame, for my honor. Surely, Church, this demonstrates that God is radically God centered. You know, John Piper, haven't quoted him for quite some time and so I'm about to, uh, Tim and I, Tim comes to the second service, good friend of mine, we've been catching up reading one of John Piper's books called Let the Nations Be Glad, it's been incredible. But as John Piper reflects on passages like these, this is what he says, quote, he says the most passionate heart for the glorification of God, what's the glorification of God? It's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Listen, the most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's heart. Who's familiar with the Shorter Westminster Catechism? Yeah, a few of you. It was a document put out many years ago. It's a fantastic piece of work. And in it, really, it just asks big questions, biblical questions, and it seeks to answer them by citing biblical references. The very first question that it asks is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what are we as human beings supposed to be about? Like, what are we to get out of bed for? What's the chief end of man? And the answer it gives is a profound one. The answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We all agree with that, hopefully. But we've got to realize that the answer applies to God as well. God's chief end, what God is mainly about, what metaphorically speaking, God gets out of bed for, because, well, he doesn't sleep, is for his own glory. His chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. This is what God's supremely about in the world, the upholding and the displaying of his glory. Now, maybe you can see the reason why I said at the beginning of the sermon, this may startle some of you. Maybe confuse some of you and why we need to secondly clarify what this actually means. Because mm, we may think that God's some egomaniac. Like some narcissist who's just in it for himself. know I mean, Some people in the world, Richard Dawkins and others, who basically say that. Look, God, the God of Scripture is just a megamaniac. He's just in it for himself. He's a cosmic narcissist. And are you aware that Oprah, when she was a young woman, Oprah, she actually walked away from Christianity vowing never to return to the church because she heard a sermon preached that's pretty much similar to the sermon that I'm preaching today. She goes, well, if God's like that, if he's just jealous, God needs his ego stroked. Like he's not worthy of my life, not worthy of my worship. And so you can see how we've got to clarify what this actually means, God being radically God-centered. Does this mean that God is unloving? Because narcissists are, right? Unloving. And what does the Bible say? First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It says, love is not what? Self seeking. So how can God be self-seeking, clearly he is, and not be unloving? How how can he be self-seeking and loving simultaneously? That's the question that we need to think about. And so for that, I want to give you an analogy, and I want to dramatize it just to make it more memorable for you. Okay, so just imagine this. I'm not going home, don't worry. So imagine this. I walk into church this morning, walk into the room, and I say something like, so good to see you. I, I know you've been pursuing lasting happiness pretty much all your life. You know, you've been trying to find satisfaction in, in many places, and you've, you've experienced spikes of pleasure, spikes of satisfaction, but, but largely they've left you high and dry. Well, the good news is, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Lewis Barron. Lewis, I'm here. All you got to do is look at my beauty and my worth and bow the knee to me and you will find everlasting joy and freedom and satisfaction for your soul. Stupid analogy, I know, but bear with me. I would be unloving if I said that. Why would I be unloving? Well, number one, not only be a nut job, but I would also be wrong. I'd be completely wrong because... I, Lewis Barron, am a weak, sinful human being. I'll be completely wrong. And secondly, I'll be unloving because I would be distracting you from the one person where you can find true life and joy and satisfaction, namely God Himself. Now, reverse the analogy, okay? Just rewind it. God comes into the room and He says, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so so happy you're here. I, I know. For all your life, pretty much, you've been chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And you've been trying to find life and happiness and satisfaction. All these places, by and large, they've left you high and dry. But the good news is, I'm here today. I, your God, I made you. I love you. I want to be in a right relationship with you. And so all you need to do is turn away from these inferior treasures and pleasures which really rob you at the end of the day and just turn to me and come to me and if you do I will satisfy your heart I will give you lasting joy and satisfaction now question the same question why would God be why wouldn't he be unloving if he, if, he, if he said that, and of course he does say that in Scripture. Why? Well, because first he would be right. Unlike me, wrong, wicked, sinful, Lewis Barron. God would be completely right because he's holy and noble. The Bible says in Psalm 16 verse 11 that in your presence is what? Fullness of joy. And pleasures forevermore. And so God would be right. And secondly, he he wouldn't be unloving because he would be directing us to that which truly satisfies, namely himself. You see, for God to direct us someplace else would be unloving. Because we can't find joy or satisfaction any place else. And so listen, this is a bit counterintuitive, but for God to be truly for you, for God to be truly for me, for us, listen, he must be for himself. Why? Because in being for himself, he's upholding that which truly satisfies, namely himself. And so, yes, God is radically God-centered, but no, he's not some cosmic narcissist, Because God is for you, by being for Himself. Can you see? And you know what makes Christianity, the message of Christianity, even more remarkable, is that Jesus, God, simply didn't come into the room or into the world and say, "Worship me." No, He came to a world that hated Him, came to the world that rejected Him. Why? Why to die for His enemies? To die for His enemies to show us his great mercy as one writer says that the apex of God's glory is the manifestation of his grace it's his mercy namely Jesus Christ that's where we really see his glory yeah and his power but mainly supremely in his in his grace he came into the world to demonstrate this grace so that we'd find our life in the presence of his mercy and compassion yeah, yeah there's some scriptures that I want to Place before you just to kind of hold up this biblical framework that I'm giving to you. Here's one Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. This is wonderful. Listen to what Paul says. I love the way he starts. He says, For I tell you, which means he wants to tell us something, right? He said, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant. Just pause there. Don't read on. I know you're reading on. Stop it. <laughs> Christ became a servant. That's not the language of narcissism, right? Christ, King, God, becoming a servant. To do what? That the Gentiles, any Jews here today? I thought not, right? We're all Gentiles. That the Gentiles might glorify God, glorify God for what? His mercy. Ephesians 1.6, I didn't put it on the screen because I'm a bad pastor, but I'll read that to you. Praise God, it says, for his glorious grace. His glorious, meaning his all satisfying grace. Had it come to us, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And so, back to the point that I made. Yes, God is radically God-centered, but no, he's not a narcissist. By being radically God-centered means that we can find life and satisfaction in, in, in life, namely in him. And so that's the most glorious news in all the world. Our God is not a cosmic narcissist. So, lastly, how long have I got? Great, 10 minutes, awesome. Apply it. How are we to respond to this kingdom reality? How are our lives to be influenced and impacted by this truth that God is radically God-centered? Well, two things. Briefly, mission and worship. Mission first. Since it's God's all-consuming passion to be God-centered, it should follow that we too should make it our goal in life to be God-centered. Right? That we should be about His glory in the world. This is why we make an emphasis on speaking about missions often at church and witnessing in our connect groups because this is what God's about in the world and again this is the most loving thing we can be about as human beings because we're directing people pointing people our kids our family members our colleagues those we hang out at uni with school neighbors etc to their ultimate joy and satisfaction now now of course they won't think that you're loving at first all right that's reality They'll think that you're bigoted and you're narrow-minded and especially those of you who who God's calling to be overseas to reach the unengaged and unreached people groups of the world. They're not going to like say to you, hey, I'm so glad you're here, like, yeah. My idols, they don't bring me satisfaction. It's awesome. No, no, there will be hostility. There will be pushback. Hence why, going back to the prayer, we need to continually pray. Father, only you can do this. Ultimately, this is your mission. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's a missionary prayer. Hallowed be your name in the world. You see, this is what encouraged missionaries Past missionaries, present missionaries, realizing, believing that God is backing us in this pursuit, in this missionary endeavor. And so let's continue to pray for our colleagues. Let's continue to be on mission together with Jesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, most importantly, worship. Worship. How are we to respond? With worship. With worship. John Piper again, he said, this famously still saying because it's still alive God is most glorified in us listen to this God is most glorified in us stop sniggering Jeff you've heard this a billion times I oh, know God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him you hear that God is most magnified in us and you when you are most satisfied and raptured in him which means that our daily pursuit ought to be this Our daily pursuit should be, Lord, I want to delight in you. Which becomes a fight, and we all know it's a fight because constantly there are inferior delights. Wanting our affection, wanting our attention. And some of these things are God's gifts. And yet we are to say to these lesser, inferior glories and treasures, not you, but the maker of you is the desire of my heart and the satisfaction of my heart. Yeah? And so everything, this is a good practice for you. If you enjoy something, one of God's gifts, say, thank you, God, but Lord, not this thing, but but you, you're the affection of my heart, the treasure of my heart. This is why worship is so critically important. And worship becomes the fuel for missions. You know, I think it's intimacy, intimacy with God, worship that stimulates kingdom activity. And and I think that there's a real profound reason why Jesus placed, listen, the Our Father before the Your kingdom, Your name be hallowed, Your will. He placed the Our Father first, which means as we come into the presence of God, we're not to pray it, Parrot fashion our father in heaven while thinking about other things no it's our father father thank you for your love in Jesus thank you Abba father and then what spills out from that is I just want to make you known because people are not honoring you loving you they're robbing you glory they're robbing themselves satisfaction and joy So, our father and then comes the missionary part the witness part you see, here's the abiding principle. We, cher- we commend what we cherish. All of us do, right? What you cherish, you naturally commend. I mean, I cherish sport, I love soccer, and I bore you to tears. I know I do when I talk about EPL. And I, You just humor me. And I, I treasure cricket most of the time, all right? It's not now because of the ashes. I'm still my heart is still bruised about that. But most of the time I, I, I cherish these things, and I commend them naturally. When we cherish God as our all-satisfying treasure, we will commend Him, which means little intimacy will be it will look like little worship, little witness, rather. That's, that's the way it is. And so, this is why we need to work and fight for our delight in God supremely. Amen? And so, in conclusion, this is what the King of the Kingdom is about. He's about himself, he's about his glory. But this is the greatest news in all the world because God being for himself means that we can find true life, which is only found in him. And as Christians, this ought to be our anthem. This ought to be our mission. This is what we're to witness about. This is why we're to tell people about him, attracting people to him, because he is the only one who can satisfy their hearts. But for that to happen, we need to be a people of worship, intimacy, which fuels kingdom activity. How about we pray? Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.